Hi, I'm Dr. Jared, and welcome to the Plantastic Podcast, a show for plant killers, green thumbs, and everyone else in between. Listen along as I deconstruct the craft and practices of remarkable horticulturists so that you can better cultivate your plants and yourself. Let's grow. This episode of the Plantastic Podcast is brought to you by Vaccinium, a.k.a. blueberries. It's June, and we now have a plethora of fruit ripening on our plants. Blueberries are one of my favorite native shrubs for both edible and ornamental qualities. Depending on where you live in the U.S., you can grow low-bush blueberries for the north, high-bush blueberries in the middle of the country, and of course, my favorite, the rabbit-eye blueberry in the south, as it thrives in our heat and humidity. In the spring, blueberries are covered with urn-shaped pinkish-white flowers that are then followed by berries that go from green to pink to a deep indigo blue that we crave as a superfood for their abundance of antioxidants. After fruiting, the foliage lasts until frost, when it turns the most incredible hues of red and orange. Most states have well-developed lists of cultivars that do well, so just contact your local extension office or Google your state's name followed by blueberry cultivars for a good list. One of my favorite varieties is Powder Blue for its really glaucous blue-gray foliage. And while plants can self-pollinate, fruiting will be better if you have a few different varieties. One thing to note if you plant blueberries, they like soil pH to be on the acidic side, around 4.5 to 5. Like azaleas, blueberries are in the heath family, and they have a high iron requirement. The increased soil acidity helps iron become more available in the soil. And again, depending upon the type of blueberry, your hardiness zones are going to range from 2 for the low bush blueberry all the way to 9 with the rabbit eye blueberry. So give blueberries a try in your garden. You can find this plant and many more at your local garden center. Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of the Plantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jared, and I hope that your gardens and plants are growing great this season. I'm very excited to share episode six, where I interview my good friend Thomas Rayner. Thomas is a registered landscape architect, teacher, and author that lives in Arlington, Virginia. He is a leading voice in ecological landscape design and has designed landscapes for the U.S. Capitol grounds, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, and the Newark Botanical Garden, as well as over 100 gardens from Maine to Florida. He is a celebrated public speaker who has garnered acclaim for his passionate presentations to audiences across the U.S. and in Europe. Thomas serves as a principal for the landscape architectural and consulting firm Fido Studio in Washington, D.C. His work has been featured in numerous publications, including the New York Times, Landscape Architecture Magazine, The Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, and Architectural Digest. While passionate about design and focusing on details, Thomas is a specialist in applying innovative planting concepts to create ecologically functional design landscapes. His recent work focuses on the artful interpretation of wild plant communities into design plantings that thrive in the context of towns and cities. Thomas teaches planting design for the George Washington University Landscape Design Program. His recently published book, co-authored with Claudia West, Planting in a Post-Wild World, was released 
in fall 2015 from Timber Press and was selected by the American Horticultural Society as one of the 2016 Books of the Year. You can learn more about Thomas on his website, thomasrainer.com. That's T-H-O-M-A-S-R-A-I-N-E-R.com. His firm Fido at FidoStudio.com. That's P-H-Y-T-O. S-T-U-D-I-O.com and on Instagram where his handle is at Thomas Rayner DC. That's again T-H-O-M-A-S-R-A-I-N-E-R-D-C. Be sure to check out the show notes on theplantasticpodcast.com for a more expanded bio on Thomas, as well as to access links of things that we discuss in this episode. Two side notes before we begin today's conversation. One is is that we talk about naturalistic planting and design plant communities, and I realize that we don't actually define what those are until about halfway through the episode. So just to give you a quick definition, when we're talking about these, these are plantings that are usually more heavy in herbaceous perennials to emulate the way that plants grow in nature to ultimately provide some type of ecosystem services and reduce the management of a planting. The second point is that while we don't go deep into it, we occasionally reference our trip to Arkansas where we saw Amsonia hubrichtii, the Arkansas blue star in the wild. And I have two blog posts up on my website where I further discuss those trips. So I share that to provide some context in case you want to explore those posts further based on their scattered mentions in the episode. So without further ado, here is my plantastic discussion with Thomas. Enjoy the show. Good morning, Thomas, and welcome to the Plantastic Podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you today as a guest. Thank you for having me, Jared. I'm super excited about this. Yeah, me too. The first thing I wanted to talk about was how your interest in plants germinated and where that started. So I was curious if you could speak to that. Yeah, I just one of those uh, kids that had loved plants from you know the time I was young, planting, taking the apple seed out of the core and trying to unsuccessfully germinate that. Uh, I remember my fifth grade research paper was about growing tomatoes and having to go interview uh, a neighbor down the street who's a really good vegetable gardener. But but the real, I I think we lived, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. We lived in a, a new suburb on the edge of a really large tract of Piedmont forest. And so our little cul-de-sac backed up to you know, the woods behind my house basically could go catty corner out in the backyard and be gone several square miles into uh, Piedmont Forest. And it was that. It was plants as not as um, horticultural specimens, but as like play spaces. You know, I remember seeing Ilex arborea in these groves, really tight groves, and we'd crawl underneath like rabbits. And that was like a really particular environment. Or it was an area, and it would be me and a bunch of other kind of semi-feral neighborhood boys just, you know, mm-hmm. taking BB gun, doing all kind of, you know, stuff we probably shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> but I remember going, I remember this one like valley between two ridges that was nothing but, almost nothing but beaches. It looked almost like a scene out of one of the Elven uh, scenes in Lord of the Rings. And even with a bunch of rowdy, like middle school boys, we all had this kind of sense of silence and hush as we went into that. And, and then there were big granite rock outcroppings in different parts. And that was always really interesting to see plants growing out of rock. I don't know how to describe it. It's more like plants as, as play spaces, but like the impression of the way that 
groups of plants like made you feel differently. The, the, the thicket and the uncomfortableness of that sparkleberry grove felt very different than the kind of grandeur and the elegance of that beach valley. So mm-hmm. it, it was that kind of diversity of, I don't know, like at an intuitive level, at an emotional level, being connected to plants in the wild that I think I just was addicted to in some ways and, and still my favorite aspect. It's just like when we were, you and I just were recently on the trip and just being boys and exploring and things, mm-hmm. discovering, like I think that I feel most alive kind of in, in that setting. Definitely, I agree. And so you were not initially going for landscape architecture. You took a slightly different route before you found a career in plants, right? Yeah. Even though when I was 13, I started working in a nursery and I just learned plants really easily. And I don't know if just being in the woods a lot helped. I could just see the differences in plants. I could learn plants really quickly, but I never considered it as a career path. I went to high school just totally, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And I went to a small liberal arts college in the South and was an English and philosophy major and thought I was going to work in a law firm. And then the senior year of college, I had worked in a really excellent law firm. And most of the uh, attorneys there were kind and all said, you know, please don't be a lawyer unless this is your end all and be all. And this makes you super excited. Don't do it. And so mm-hmm. I panicked my senior year. It was like I had all my, my eggs in that one basket and started applying to all kinds of stuff. And at that point, discovered I had a friend whose dad was a landscape architect, and I talked to him about it, and really without understanding what it was. So it's more of a kind of a panic, like two months before I graduate, I need to, or maybe a little more than that, six months before I graduate, I need to find something else. And found out you could get a graduate degree in landscape architecture as a three-year program, which was ideal for me, because all I wanted to do is be in school longer and avoid real life. And so in the University of Georgia had one, and I got a good stipend for all that, really without understanding kind of what the profession was. I, I knew, I thought it had something to do with plants. I think I learned later how little landscape architecture intersects with the plant world or how, how poorly sometimes they do that. But I just thought it seemed um, to combine my love of the outdoors with possibly with plants and shaping environments for people. So one of those major life decisions made on a total panic whim that, that worked out okay. So um, very fortunate. Yeah, definitely. And I see this too with students where they'll get to their junior or senior year, similar to you, yeah. realize that they're ready mm-hmm. to make a life choice change decision. And do you have any mm-hmm. advice for them? Yeah, that's a great question. I fumbled through it so poorly and got lucky with that. I don't know. Like I, I think for, and I have a lot of classmates who did the program with me who aren't landscape architects now. So I do feel like, I don't know. I think maybe just take your time. Don't feel like you have to make a decision right away. I think anything that allows people to a little bit of time to explore what they really want to do. And yeah, the reality is most people change careers, you know, I can't remember what the stats are, three, four or five times in, in a lifetime. So yeah, I don't really true. feel like we're in an age where people have to, at one moment, decide something that shapes the fate of their life. I think just whether it's taking a year to travel or doing some type of internships or anything that allows you to explore and get a flavor. Like the fact that I had that internship in the law firm, I saved me probably years of agony had I just put my head down and kept going with what I thought I wanted to do. So maybe just, just try stuff out and see. Yeah. Great point. 
So Thomas, you shared with me before that you took a class with Daryl Morris and where he explored the Southeast looking at plant habitats. Could you talk to us more about that? Yeah. So Daryl Morrison is an iconic figure in landscape architecture. He was a real pioneer in the native plant movement starting in the 60s. He was strongly advocating for the use of native plants in landscape architectural design. And Daryl was a real savant in terms of just plant knowledge. He was from Wisconsin. And I think he did the, is it the Custis Prairies, like one of the very first prairie restorations in North America. And then he was mm-hmm. dean of the program at Georgia. But he was everyone's favorite professor, you know, at University of Georgia while we were there. And he was great in the studio. But the best class, so after we were done with the normal semester, which ended in May, he had what was called the Maymester, which was like a one-month extension. And that class was basically driving around. It was all in the Southeast. We, I think there was, I don't know, 15 different environments we went to. And they would rent a bunch of university vans, like two or three university vans. And we would go from the, the heights of Mount Mitchell in the Southern Appalachians all the way down to the swamps of Okefenokee. And he would just have us go to these different environments. He'd have really long plant lists because he had gone to these places so much. And these were some of the, the kind of most primal, most undisturbed, the, the best examples of native plant environments that were left in the Southeast. So some real, like some longleaf pine forests that had never been logged, you know, that were still virgin, which was just blew my mind, just majestic, especially right after they had just been burned and everything was just emerging to almost Gothic-like quality of some of the Cumberland Island in Georgia, so like with the huge live oaks and Spanish moss and the Theranoa repens just going on forever. It felt like a, a scene from Jurassic Park or something, just so primal <laughs> mm-hmm. to the, the what was left of some of the spruces on tops of Mount Mitchell and those great environments. And it was such a revelation for me because as a boy growing up in the woods, I think the woods I grew up in were it's owned by the railroad company. And so they would log it probably every 40, 50 years. It was just a very generic kind of second growth, third growth, whatever you call it, uh, Piedmont Forest versus these places we saw with Daryl were so majestic. They were just so impressionable. And to see, you just got a glimpse of what the wild must have been pre-colonial times when they were being managed by indigenous cultures. And again, that, that, that sense of the way that native plant communities just create unbelievable spaces, like that harmony of plant to place that results out of thousands of years of evolution. And so we would, we would go and we would sit and he would make his journal and he would make a sketch. And I think the journaling and the sketching, mostly the sketching was just a way of helping you see the patterns and the, the key species. And and again, it was it just recalled my childhood, but this is a more informed way of understanding and also understanding what we've lost. Like I think seeing these little, these are all refugia and remnants of what used to be much larger landscapes. So, you know, un- understanding how special these places were. So that to me was one of the most impressionable things. And I think really hammered home the theme for me, which is that plants in communities feel and look and behave differently than the horticultural approach to plants, you know, which kind of pulls them apart taxonomically and looks at them, building them in gardens like they're a bunch of uh, paint chips. It's a very different approach than seeing how they grow in the wild. It's just all about these robust, dynamic, spatially elegant 
communities and how they, you know, adapt to a place. Jumping forward, like that, that has been a seed, a germinating thought that has been consistent from my childhood and kind of in graduate school. That is still something that's forefront in how we approach planting now. Just, just that idea, like plants as a social system. I, I like your idea about them being a social network and how they evolve together, because I've also heard you talk about one time how we, with these plant communities, they're almost like you've got a car or a truck. And what we try to do sometimes is we basically try to go in and take out like one piece of that vehicle and then arrange them artistically. And I just thought that analogy was beautiful. And I was just curious, you have such good analogies about talking about plant communities as social networks and other things. Do you have any more thoughts on that that you'd like to elaborate on? Yeah, I think using language that helps people to see plant systems is really something that we're very often trying to, you know, convince our clients of, convince park staff of, because it, it really requires, you know, a slightly different approach to design a slightly different approach to installation and a slightly different approach to management. And so if we can make people understand that, I think it really helps. Just as an example, last year, the county dug up a bunch of asphalt in front of our house. We had the road in front of our house where two or three roads merged and it was like a triple wide in a very large area of asphalt. So they dug it up and put a rain garden there. And this thing really fills up with water. It, when it rains, it is rushing. It's really interesting. It's, it's, we have a garden, which is meant to be something pleasurable for us, and we're arranging things artistically. But this rain garden, like you see that plants need to function for the scouring and need to function for the tolerance to the wetness. There's just all kinds of stuff because it's a real living system. So when you have these certain environments where plants have to do things, have to function in a very specific way, then the need for them to work together and harmony as a system really gets highlighted for us. So yeah, we're constantly with clients, and this is true for a lot of the sites that we design with, whether it's rooftop or just a, all kinds of public landscapes where there are urban stresses from, whether it's from flooding or, or sometimes dry drought or poor soils, whatever the conditions are, like the more we can convince our clients to understand this as a system that, can, that will do more working together than if we did a more traditional horticultural approach, which would be arrange plants individualistically, like paint chips or in, in little blocks, then I think we can help them to just have more functional planting. And I think it can also be more aesthetic. I think there's aesthetic benefits as well. But that's our, our big thing. And, and the language of whether it's an engine or sometimes you talk about plants having a body language that shows them where, what part in the system they want to um, function in. The shorthand is helpful in convincing people to, to have different approaches. How can the home gardener better see that body language? Because I know in talking to you, we've talked about how some plants have the no foliage at the bottom or upright growth or rhizomatous habit. How can the average home gardener better learn to see that better? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's a great starting point for home gardeners. It's just, if you can just start looking at the plants in your garden, not so much in plan view, but more like what a rabbit would see, get down on your knees a little bit and look at the plant's shape, its morphology. And if it is typically more of an upright plant, so a lot of like grasses would be that way, a lot of perennials 
a lot of our shrubs, more of an upright or mounding shape. Those very often in the wild are, would have something else growing underneath them. And so part of what we're trying to get homeowners and, and even our clients to understand is the difference between what we call like upper layer kind of design layer plants and ground covers. Because a lot of the times what we're, we're trying to do is to convince people to use a kind of diverse mosaic of very low shade tolerant ground covers underneath because a green mulch underneath this upper layer plant. There's really more like a kind of a one, two, and there, you can break apart the layers in, in many ways, but the, the most basic level is just more upright plants, something like uh, a veronicastrum or a lot of ornamental grasses or I'm uh, looking out my window now at a Amsonia lustrous that's growing much more shrubby, but very upright. And mm-hmm. there's all kind of low Mullenbergia, undaunted, reverentia, like all around the base of that thing that's coming out of. And that helps to really have, the, the whole point of that is to understand that when we layer more plant roots in the ground, we expand the, the functionality of the planting. And, and for a home gardener, the, the simplest thing is just when plant, when you have green mulch, when plants are the mulch, there's just a whole lot less work to do. As soon as you eliminate bare soil, because in most parts of North America, bare soil is almost always a temporary condition. And so if you have a bunch of azaleas in the yard or a boxwood or shrubs, typical American suburban plants, and nothing but mulch underneath it, you're always going to have to put either more mulch or spray Roundup or do something to prevent what's inevitably going to happen, which is what plants want to do. They want to fill every niche. So, so for homeowners, that's, that's the basic thing. It's just looking at the shapes of the plants, looking at, is it, does it have bare legs? And it, if it does, that's likely a plant in the wild that grew with something else around the base of it. That's one of the things that I struggle with the most is the ground cover layer, because I feel like here in the Southeast, we have such a long growing season that we have the spring plants that usually either are ephemerals or go dormant. We lack the bulbs that a lot of people further north can grow. They can grow like dense, or you'll see Cassian Schmidt, you know, over in Germany, he'll do a whole matrix layer of crocus or something. It's just amazing. But the thing too, is that down here in the South, we don't have as many options. I feel like further north, because north you can use heuchera or geranium, all these species. So how do we go about finding good candidate species for us to use as ground covers? Yeah, I think, you know, that's where seeing what's growing in the fields, what's growing in the forest around there, sometimes will give some clues. Maybe in that kind of hot subtropical south, I don't know if, if it's more warm season grasses, more of a, because it's, it's so cool, the D.C. area. So a lot of our ground covers tend to be, so if we separate plants like with more cool season growing versus more warm season growing, we have a more distinct mm-hmm. season up here where we have a lot of like long cool season growing plants and these tend to be the ground cover layers here. They tend to be more active, like from February to now. And then once the heat starts heating up in June or so, then we have all these kind of warm seasons. Some of them I'm making the warm season, cool season, a more generic term because I know that specifically applies to the metabolism of mostly grasses. Sure. A few other things. But I think there are typically even beyond just grasses, plants that tend to be more active, especially like woodland ephemerals and the the kind of the cooler uh, season months and some that tend to be more the meadow species, more active in the 
warmer season. And, and so we're layering those two together. Where you are, that cool season is probably really short. So it might be just more, I don't know. I mean, this, this is a short answer, but I, I don't know if it's just more warm season, shorter warm season grasses. And, because they come up so much earlier for you than they might for, for us. So like a lot of those warm season grasses is almost June before a lot of them are actively holding any space. Yeah. Yeah. And cause I've got some anthropogons now that look, you know, good full lush growth on them. One of the things that I'm thinking about is basically just relying upon some of these plants that maybe have more basal rosette habitat or have more basal yeah. rosette habit early in the year. And then later right. in the, later in the season, what they'll do is they'll just grow up and emerge and then be in the flower. Because I feel like here in the South too, another thing we deal with is that things grow so vigorously down here because of the heat and humidity. Right. And right. It's, it's almost like the heat and humidity and drought select against a lot of these Shorter type grasses, blue stems, little blue stem, schizocarium. Right. And you go right. out to these places like Denver or up to the Lurie Garden, you've got all these cute little quaint grasses. And then down here, <laughs> very quickly, things can get away from you. We've got Baptisia that are like yeah. seven feet tall. That's a, a really good point about the differences in different parts of our country. We were out in Colorado a little bit last summer and seeing how different that's most everything there is a bit more stress tolerating. And so they have very little weed pressure there because it's so dry. So there's much less need, like in the front range of Colorado, for example, for ground covers in the way that there is on the mid-Atlantic where I am, mm -hmm. where weed pressure is so hard. And so we're using ground cover layers. It's functionally as a competitive exclusion here because our biggest source of labor and time here is just like all the weeds that would grow underneath these upright plants right, right. out in the front range. So like it's much less important to focus on ground covers than to have kind of a nice array of different shapes of stress tolerating species. And where you are, again, a totally different dynamic there. So I think the principles are still the same, but I think what you're saying is totally right. Learning to adjust. And I love your idea about the low basal foliage because there are so many plants even just Rudbeckias to Pignanthemums and other things that, that start off with a very um, low basal foliage early and, and do that exclusion and then shoot up later. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a, a really good way of plants that really have two layers in them in themselves. Oh, yeah, that's true. I thought about that. So we're talking about principles uh, here, and I'd like to start moving into ways that you've blossomed in the world. You and Claudia West co-author Planting in a Post-Wild World. A lot of people consider this one of the best books on naturalistic planting design. And in it, you had a sentence that said, all art is a process of selection, distillation, amplification. So the reason I say that is because one of the things that I was so impressed with this book is, is that you were basically able to select and distill down naturalistic planting into five principles, designing with communities in mind, not just single plants, stress being an asset, covering the ground with plants, making the planting attractive and legible, and then also managing an entire site, not just maintenance of individual plants. I was curious, how did y'all develop those principles? How did you kind of distill it down into those essences? So that, that was a good question. I, that was a hard part of writing it. We 
And, and one of the most enjoyable parts of writing, and, and I just have to credit Claudia West, my business partner. She is uh, a real savant when it comes to horticultural knowledge. She grew up in East Germany in a nursery. She was probably propagating before she was walking. <laughs> and not, not only has a kind of grower's understanding of plants, but also just such a big picture view of, of plants and plant dynamics in the world. The collaboration with her on this book and the, the me approaching plant community design really much from a very aesthetic point of view and all of those principles I learned from traveling with Daryl and you know, he had a very specific approach to plant community design. Part of what I had grown up with is really more about distilling the, es- the visual essence of a larger plant community for a smaller hmm. design site. So like using the dominant species and, and, the, and the types of patterns that you saw them in the wild. A lot about like mimicking the reference, the wild reference in a design setting so that you can make something very small feel like the larger site. So it's almost like a... Some of the principles are almost like a bonsai or pinging design, like when you're designing these little dishes with bonsai plants. Like, how can you make something really small have the spirit of something much bigger? So then Claudia's the whole reference point was this functional role of planting. And you know, Claudia uh, had uh, been back to graduate school in Germany, which has this beautiful long history since the end of World War II, of really approaching herbaceous plants particularly for public settings with a really research point of view. So they're from the gravel systems. So her research in Germany's long history after World War II with uh, Richard Hansen and Friedrich Stahl and their research in creating novel plant communities, essentially. So she had a very different view. And so I think part of what was fascinating about writing the book with her was merging two different points of view about plant community design. Hers was a little more about the functionality, how you reassemble something novel to hold ground and actually function. And then mine was a little more from a designer's point of view about how can you evoke something that was large and big in a small space. And so it was just a lot of conversations. And we, I don't know, we, I think we start off with probably 10, 15, 20 principles and just through a lot of discussion, try to really weed it down to the to five that we thought you just couldn't you couldn't do it without so that, that was i think for us it was a really nice way of reframing and making people understand the difference that this approach has from a, a more traditional horticultural approach well i so appreciate y'all's work trying to distill those concepts down because this is what i teach students and i was listening to a podcast the other day on the knowledge project and they were talking about how charlie munger he what he'll do is he'll give principles names and he'll give things names so that that way you mm. can make them memorable and talk about them so i do really so appreciate yeah. y'all condensing it down into these principles i feel like we've already talked a yeah. lot about designing with communities in mind and also covering the ground with plants. Mm -hmm. I was curious if you could talk more about stress being an asset and how Mm -hmm. home gardeners can try to make situations in the gardens more stressful. Like why should we see stress as an asset? Because I I think even sometimes in life, people are like, Oh, stress, I've got so much stress. So how can stress be an asset? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, this to me, and Jared, you've said this in the past too, like understanding, this goes back a little bit to the understanding a little bit more ecological point of view about plants and why certain plants grow. It's not because 
uh, of abundance of resources. So much of why certain plants grow on particular sites in the wild, whether that's like urban wild or native wild, has to do with the lack, like what it could tolerate. It's more about tolerance. And that really opened my mind thinking about hostas, like in, in these dry shade plants, which are, you know, tend to be very well behaved, like their whole adaptation is a response to a lack of sunlight and being able to tolerate the low light condition. That's a certain stress. Everything about their morphology, everything about their shape, the tolerance to that, or Asclepias tuberosa, everything about that plant, you know, from the, the shape of the plant to the architecture of its root, to the height at which it sets its flowers, to its seed dispersal, everything about its evolution is a response to the stress of growing in low grassland situations and all that kind of competition that's happening there. So the home gardener, you know, and I think one of the things that, that horticulture and maybe even home gardening, that whole kind of culture of suburban home gardening, and even landscape architecture, my profession, one of the things we do very poorly is we approach sites with this idea that if we have not ideal circumstances, if we have too much shade, we limit our trees. If we don't have enough water, we add irrigation. If we have really gravelly, infertile soil, we add tons of compost. If we have too much clay, we bust it up. And, you know, so, so we, we do all of these things, which we're really honest about it. Like, one, it's a lot of work. Two, the environmental footprint of, like, radically changing a site to be something that it really isn't is really hard. And then just third, this whole idea that we, we're really changing our sites to be more generic with mm-hmm. this idea that we want to make sites be this generic medium that's neutral enough to grow anything we want from all over the world. When plants actually don't want generic sites, they don't want to grow in potting soil. They want something really funky. A plant wants crazy high pH or crazy low pH. You know, plants mm-hmm. want, or, or there are maybe wants, not the right word, I'm anthropomorphizing plants. I think plants tolerate, they've evolved to tolerate certain stresses. And if we can just embrace the stress we have, if you have a health strip that's super droughty and infertile, instead of like overly amending that with compost and making it super rich so that you can grow roses and anything you want from all over the world, leaving it be super dry and nasty and then just planting only what will grow in that site. And, and when you do that, like when you, this is, I think, going back to this principle, like when you see plants that have adapted to really particular conditions, the, the visual look of a planting that fits a really particular stress in site is always excellent. You know, like it's beautiful. There's this kind of a harmony of plant to place that happens when the plant that only will grow in that, that little crazy moist pocket that you have that never fully drains out and you find a good wet loving plant that just thrives in that spot or a super uh, disturbed area i mean i have some gravel paths all over my yard it's just fascinating to see what loves the disturbance in gravel and like what germinates and everything that grows there plants that move out of my garden beds because they'd rather grow in the gravel in the past than be in the, the rich soil of my garden bed. But that's just a big part of, you know, and that for me was a big mind change from what I had learned. You know, I, so much of my early career was spent, how can we make the soils richer, more productive, better? And I was essentially creating conditions, these like hyper rich soils, creating conditions for very unstable plantings. The rich soil, with a lot of disturbance, is the ideal candidate for weeds, invasive species, floppy native plant. But it's not really what 
so many of the more desirable plants that we that are in the industry. That's not what they really want. Mm-hmm. But one is just, I think, learning to embrace the stress you have. I think for gardener James Golden's garden, Federal Twist, he has a book that's recently out. That is a beautiful example of that's a garden in New Jersey with crazy hard and tons of moisture, lots of white-tailed deer problems. And James just planted a garden, only growing what will grow in this really harsh site. And it's, it's, it's fabulous. One of the most fabulous gardens, I think, on the East Coast, a naturalistic garden, just because he embraced the, the stresses of that particular site. Now, in some sites, it might be drought, something super uh, harsh. Southern California has got lots of drought. And so a lot of that's about kind of deer plant communities. But just learning to see like that part of your garden that you constantly are struggling with, what is that condition? What is the struggle? Is it shade? Is it moisture? Is it soil? And then trying to find out like what actually would want to grow in a site like that and embracing that. It's really common sense when you describe it, but when you think about how much of our built landscapes are fighting that principle, you realize it's both it's revolutionary and common sense at the same time. No, I agree. And I'm like you because for me growing up, I read a lot of the vegetable books, organic right, gardening and right. other books that focused on that. And you're right. The biggest focus tended to be like improve the soil, enrich the soil. And so whenever I read about stress as an asset, it just, I, I was like you, it blew my mind. And I think part of the thing is, is like yeah. vegetable gardening, we're mainly growing like rural species where they yeah. benefit yeah. from abundant amounts of fertility because think about it. If you have a little Delphinium carolinianum that's grown out in the wild, it may be two mm-hmm. feet tall. You put it in a bed mm-hmm. where there's a lot more fertility, it may grow four or five feet tall. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's exactly. the same principle. I was just going to say, I was we, Cloudy and I were just talking about just seeing Solidigo speciosa, um, which is just such a beautiful, showy goldenrod in the wild, and it's about two feet tall. And I have it in my garden, not particularly rich soils, but it's six feet tall and flops. So I do Chelsea cuts and all, all of that other stuff. But it, it's really like understanding how one can, how embracing leaner conditions for much, of, especially for the naturalistic planting tradition, can lead to just much better results, shorter, more floriferous, uh, longer lived, more stable combinations. No, I wholeheartedly agree. Do you have any advice on where people can find out like what plants grow in certain conditions? If somebody was really wanting to explore this further? That is a great question. I don't know a single source. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem. I think, and this is also true because sometimes people ask me like, where are good resources about like understanding perennial roots? And I did a few little books that try to talk about root systems here and there, but I think the literature for the most part, the horticultural literature lacks a whole lot about these kind of ecological understandings of one, a plant's habitat. You can go through lots of wonderful horticultural reference books that they all say plants want a fertile, well-drained, loamy soil, right? Like every plant in the world wants a well-drained loam, which is true. That's a fairly good generic medium to grow a whole lot of things in. Not nothing that's not true. It's just very hard to find out, I think, what plants have evolved to tolerate without seeing them in the wild a lot, you know, which is, I think, part of why you and I <laughs> like to go out and see them and, and try to reveal a little bit more about the mystery, what they can tolerate and what 
they've evolved to, so we can understand potential a little bit more. But it's a hole. It's a hole in the horticultural library, I think, in many ways. And I think really requires sleuthy gardeners to, you know, just ponder their own experience with plants in different parts of their gardens or to, to take a hike and really look at what's happening with a, a plant that they like or um I'm always, sometimes I find like Flickr online to me, like I can very often find other horticultural geeks who have photographed plants in the wild. And every once in a while, they just seeing where they're growing helps me to understand a little bit more about the types of stress they've evolved to tolerate or um, what they grow with, how tall they get, what, what, what they're used to. So that maybe that makes me help, helps me make more informed decisions about how I use them in a garden setting. Yes, same here. I was also curious about if someone reads your book and they decide they want to do a naturalistic planting at their own home, what do you think is the biggest limiting factor for home gardeners doing naturalistic plantings? Because looking forward, I realized that planting design has been on this pendulum swinging back and forth from like more naturalistic to more designed, the border, yeah. colorful, intense. And definitely it has yeah. swung back toward this more naturalistic planting approach. But for me, looking forward in the future, I don't see how we go back because with all the issues we're dealing with from climate change to insect apocalypse to dealing with stormwater management, I mean, to me, naturalistic planting is going to be a big part of our future. So in, in your mind's eye, what is that biggest limiting factor for the average home gardener deciding to do it or wanting to do it in their own garden? So that is a great question. I think in a, the scale is very often complicating with naturalistic planting. And I'll just say that most naturalistic planting, and by that, I think Define what I mean by that. It's mostly herbaceous or, or herbaceous dominated, not that you couldn't have a tree or shrub in it, but herbaceous dominated, multi-layered, you know, so things aren't just purely blocked. Things might be growing more, more mixed and more of a focus of plants in different functional roles. So that's what we mean by natural planting. But, so in general, that tends to be a little wooly. So, so you have a certain volume of herbaceous plants. One is always best when they're close to the same height. So the smaller site you have, I find, and, and we're doing a lot of mixes of sometimes 10 or 12 species, but the more that the average height is the same, that really helps. And if there are some taller species that are in there, we try to focus on, especially in small spaces, uh, taller species which are more emergent in their form and by that most of the leaf mass of the plant low like the basal foliage plant with the whatever the, the, the flowering parts of it tend to be a little more transparent and leafless that tends mm -hmm. to create kind of a calmer more tidy look when you have flowers that like agora popping out of a bunch of grasses um you know, does it feel quite as intimidating in a small garden as maybe some like the Baptisia sometimes, which sometimes, you know, depending on the species, some of them can be quite shrubby in appearance. Or an Ansonia hubrechtia may not be a great plant for a really small space because it's so big and shrubby. It takes up a lot of space. So I, I think the other principle that we think a lot about is just how they're framed. You know, so naturalistic plantings in small spaces, I think, need tidy borders. So very often using you know, using edge species and maybe those become a little more formally arranged 
block masked or, or, or done in little uh, tidy clusters so that you have a kind of sharp edges around naturalistic planting. That really helps in small spaces. And then the other thing I think is just having enough width. So sometimes four feet is just not enough because the, 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 what makes naturalistic planting so beautiful and interesting is they're multi-layered. So things come up and bloom for a few weeks of the year, and then those kind of fade away, and the next thing comes up and blooms a few weeks of the year. And so it really helps to have a little bit of depth um, in a planting. A, a bed that's 12 feet deep is really wonderful versus a bed that's two or three really becomes much harder to do it in. Not that you, you couldn't do a little vignette or something like that. So Sometimes we try to help our clients understand where a mixed naturalistic planting bed can look its best and whether that's having a nice kind of curbing around it or putting next to a lawn, which sometimes helps make it look a little more tidy. We're, we're very often thinking about, we think about the, the naturalistic planting mixes as a liquid that needs to be poured a framework in some ways. And, and if we can find a framework with this lawn or curbing or a nice clean edging and then restrain the height of the planting in certain ways, then I think we can come up with combinations and, and mixes that take advantage of what's amazing about naturalistic planting, which is, you know, their function, their dynamism, how not, they don't just change every day. They change sometimes hour by hour is all that stuff, which I find incredibly pleasurable as a gardener, yeah. just watching the change happen. So, so it, it's a lot of kind of framing it. And then frankly, sometimes in a small enough space, it might not be worth having naturalistic planting. Maybe it's not the right fit for everything. Maybe more block masked in certain areas is a better approach. And I think that's one of the things I want to say about our book is that I think you're right about the direction of the world and the need for ecological horticulture. But but I still think it's a big enough world that we still need to border, you know, fantastic traditional perennial borders. We still need great formal gardens. There's nothing wrong with having some of that. So I think there's a place for everything. I think it's just understanding, especially with the naturalistic planting, what are the, the ideal kind of design parameters that will make it show off in the best way. No, I agree. We definitely need all types of horticulture. For us, we're not ideological about native plants or ecological planting as being like the thing that everyone has to do. I think we need more of it. There's a million great places to put it. But it's mm -hmm. not the only game in town. I love all types of horticulture. I love formal gardens. Love them. You know, I love clip hedges. Love roses. Love great dixers, perennial borders. You know, like those are high art forms to me. So I mm -hmm. think there's a danger in our world of horticulture when we get zealous, <laughs> right, about thou shalt have to do this and thou shalt not. I think there's so many places to, to expand ecological horticulture into, and that's what we're passionate about. But it doesn't have to come at the expense of fabulous formal gardens or, or some of the more traditional ways that traditional gardens have used it. We need all of it. No, I agree with you. And I actually think that we're headed towards a world where we just need more plants. It doesn't really matter what yes. type, et cetera. But just the fact that we need it. And I also agree with you. I think that seeing these beautiful ways that plants are clipped and trained and if you go to some of these gardens like chanticleer or like you said you know great right. dexter and see how they have manipulated plants and changed plants and use plants as art to me that really evokes that deep artistic wonder 
of just being like, wow, I'm amazed at how people have used it. And I agree with you too. It pains me a little bit to see sometimes in horticulture, people are like, destroy these certain types of plantings. Let's do something negative because the plants that are there are already doing something negative. And I think that we need to take much more of a positive approach in, in really engaging people with the wonder of plants than just being like, destroy these plants that we don't necessarily like yeah. or don't want or something. So yeah, that zealous. Well said. Uh, I totally you. agree. And I think just being like, curious, I think what you're saying too, is I love what, the way you're talking about like the artistry of Chanticleer or Dixter. I think the native plant movement in particular needs to approach native plants with that kind of artistry. Like how much better would it be instead of just like, ideologically just believing in the rightness of the plants and ignoring great design. If they approach native planting design with that sense of artistry and curiosity and that aspect of traditional gardening and horticulture, there's so many useful tools and mental approaches that could be applied to ecological horticultural as well. And it needs both. I think we just like if if both sides and and then of course, traditional gardens, I think a lot of the the gardens where we're working right now in Toronto Botanic Garden, There'll be many traditional plantings, but for example, we're going to do a peony that only uses the straight species, peonies, you know, so better pollination, and we'll underplant it. But it's going to be a very formal looking garden, but we're applying ecological principles to a very formal garden to get more out of a formal garden. So this kind of high style horticulture could benefit from ecological principles. At the same time, I feel like ecological horticulture and the native plant movement, those could really benefit from the kind of artistic traditions and the kind of the sense of it's okay to manipulate a plant like that (laughs) we manipulate our whole planet we should use these tools of manipulation to bring more pleasure for people especially with ecological species that can do more so it's really not being suspicious about the other camp of horticulture it's really about like what is this toolkit that they can offer that can make my side better you have written a blog post too about how you have seen naturalistic plantings failing, like, for example, in ray gardens or pollinator gardens. Are you still seeing those same failures? And if so, like, what do you think is the underlying issue there? Uh, yes, is the short answer. Certainly, like green infrastructure planting almost all over the country being kind of designed from a manual, very often like a county manual that selects some appropriate plants. But for example, in these rain gardens, there are never enough ground covers. And this is a very dynamic, like even the one the county planted in front of our house where we're going in and underplanting and I'm dividing plants. Like there's no ground covers underneath all these juncus and iris and all these kind of wet loving plants, very upright plants. Mm-hmm. And, and right now I'm watching this rain garden, which th- those plants are living, but they're, because there's so much mulch under there, which washes around everywhere, this explosion of nutgrass and crabgrass and all these weeds that in areas where there's ground covers, there's much less and something like that. But sometimes the failures are a lack of understanding the functional need of having plants in different layers, having the ground covered throughout the year, as much of the year as possible. Sometimes they're just design failures. So like I see a lot of like pollinator gardens intended pollinator gardens and that kind of thing that, uh, again, aren't really thinking about composition or design. And again, because I think the ideology is all about these are great plants, just put them in there. And the cost of failure, I think, is high. There's elementary school down the street from us. And I've watched two or three pollinator gardens go in that look fine initially, aren't very well maintained. They put in all of these big, huge, sprawling native plants, Rebecca lancinatas and 
Joe pie weeds and Sclepius incarnatas and they all great plants, but big floppy plants and they all grow together. And then eventually there's such an outrage about the way it looks, they get mowed down and replaced with turf. So, so that's just heartbreaking to me because like you see the cost and the effort that went into creating an alternative to turf that as a result of the failure, everyone is now more suspicious of again. So I, I think we're awash, a country awash in examples of really bad planting and you know, I think there's more opportunities to do it well. But for us, we want to make sure if we're going to do a planting, a naturalist planting, doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the commitment of people to do it, is it the right setting, is it the right design? It's, it's still complicated. And I, I hate that there's such a big barrier to entry sometimes with doing it. I love people like Roy Dibblick who are writing books showing more like a recipe cookie cutter approach to layered planting or like the German systems, which they're coming up with habitat mixes that could be used by all kinds of people. Like I think those kind of efforts to democratize some of these ideas, even if you're starting simply is a really good starting point uh, for places to do that. That's why I wanted to ask you about it because I agree with you that if we do these plantings and then they fail, it just begins to set up this doom loop where people have this negative yes. perception of them and then they're less likely to do them at all. Yes. Doom loop is a great word. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. That is a Jim Collins good to great word. So that's, that's not my own, but it's <laughs> this concept that it comes from this idea of organizations that just seem to make these bad set of decisions. And then what it does is it just basically mm-hmm. begins to keep feedback on itself until eventually the company fails. And so I I think the same way sometimes with these naturalistic plantings, you're right, they get done or even pollinator plantings, they get done. But maybe one of the biggest things is, like you said, that there is a lack of investment that people want to have a garden, but then they really struggle with the investment in it because it is a lot of time and resources committed. It is for sure. For, for a lot of, if we're working with a municipality or, or a group that wants to do something like this, we try to raise expectations about what's involved. And, and I think we're trying to design it to be as low maintenance as possible, understanding that these are actually fairly low maintenance. But to get people in the mindset that these are not no maintenance. And then to do one, I think so much better to do one excellent pilot project. You know, just do one outstanding example and do it as well mm-hmm. as you can do it and have the resources to take care of it. Because if you have, whether it's on one campus or in an office park or something, you just have one, maybe it's a small planting, but it's just excellent. Well done. It's beautiful. People become proud of it. That becomes a great model. Then you can expand as there is more willingness or resources to do it. Fadia in Lancaster, that's the way she started doing some of these rain gardens, which were basically retrofits of a bunch of failed ones. The county came to her with saying, we have a hundred of these you can do. Just, let's just do two really well and work with your maintenance staff over a two-year period to do it. Let's see what works. And they just like they hacked it and figured it out and came up with two really beautiful ones. And then once they were all on board, changed the, the people who were taking care of it, changed their opinion about what was needed to do. They became big advocates of it. And then we were able to expand it to much more. And I, and I think that kind of approach is, is typically much better then let's let's do this as many places as possible and but cut corners and don't really have the investment of the people who are going to take care of it. You know, that it just becomes I love that, the doom loop. Yes. And I'll give you another one. He also talks about bullets before cannonballs. 
He says a lot of good successful organizations, what they will do is they will first fire a few small things to get their targeting set. And then once they've got it, they then fire. And so like, for example, Apple did a huge thing with computers, really focused on that. But then what Uh they did, that was their bullets. But then what they did is with the iPod and the iPhone Uh and the iPad, they've totally revolutionized technology now. And so that's their cannonball. They they did that shift. And what you were talking about with Claudia is the exact same of do a couple really well, understand what you're shooting for, and then you can go in that direction. So yeah, I love that you have a horticultural example. I love that. So that's great because I've been looking for horticulture examples to teach the students (laughs) about that concept. So thank you for sharing that one. No, thanks for the phrases. Those are good. (laughs) Definitely. So moving on, I want to talk about how you grow as a horticulturist. I know that you and Claudia are partners in owning Fido Studio. You're, of course, landscape architecture and garden design firm. So I'm curious, how do you stay current and how do you really encourage yourself to grow as a landscape architect and garden designer? That's a great question. Uh, I think a lot of what we're finding, we're a few years into running Fido, and we, my wife Melissa Rayner is also one of the founding partners, and she's so oh yes, excellent. Got to throw uh, a lesson. landscape architect as well. Yes, for sure. I think a big part of what I feel like keeps us on our edge is the work itself, the projects. Just taking this idea about plant community design and trying to apply them to a range of different sites. We have a park in Toronto in the waterfront that's like a, a, a faux cliff, a pretend cliff that's meant to screen out this elevated highway and it's got super steep slopes and very low maintenance. So it's like right now we're trying to use these cliff, plant communities that grow on cliffs, which are mostly stress tolerating and kind of rural plant communities. This public, we want it to look like that, but this site is not going to be that because this we need these kind of rhizomatous, colonial spreading plants. So like that project's all about looking at a reference plant community, but changing the palette entirely because the, the, the wild palette is actually very inappropriate for this hyper-urban site. But we want to have that kind of look of the different layers. And so, you know, that, projects like that, or I think a lot of the work that we're given we're, we serve as a sub-planting design sub-consultant to other landscape architects. And just the nature of the projects tend to be, I don't think they would call us if they were, it was a really easy site to design. So we get, we just get a lot of very challenging projects. They're high visibility, a lot of eyes on them. We're doing a skyscraper in Manhattan where the light levels are so crazy low. And we're looking at like a ravine, plant, it's, it's a, a big, long, narrow site, looking at ravine plant communities like in the Southern mm-hmm. Appalachians, like how uh, plants grow in these super dark ravines and what the patterns are and what the combinations might be both evocatively and then again, trying to translate them to species to actually grow in this, this site in hyper-urban Manhattan. So part of what keeps our edge, I think, is just like doing the research about what how we can adapt these ideas to very particular challenges in our site. I think the other thing I would just say is I love playing people. And connecting with people like you, Jared, and in traveling, going to conferences, plant people are fantastic in terms of their willingness to share what they know, their enthusiasm about species they've seen in the wild that might be you know, worth propagating, combinations that really worked out in different areas, 
patterns. I, I just find that culture, that world is such a happy place for me. And I didn't get to know it really until doing some lectures, mostly after we wrote the book a little bit before then. They're a constant source of inspiration. And then I have my own James Hitchman, Nigel Dunnett, like just do unbelievable work, always like a million people to work at Pete out off. Um, there, there are just a huge number being on social media and you are as well with planting designers all over the world, some in the Netherlands, some in Latin America, who are just like hacking it in their sites with their own local flora, I find just hugely inspiring and just give me all kinds of ideas about ways we can push this idea of naturalistic planting and in design landscapes. Yeah, I get tons of ideas from colleagues too. It's such a blessing to have social media so we can see each other's projects. Do you have any daily practices or rituals that you do as a horticulturist or creative to keep yourself grounded or keep yourself moving forward on things? No, not really. I, that's a good question. I, I wish I did. I think I'm a gardener. I have a little garden here. Then I think being engaged in that is always very grounding, really trying to think through the management challenges of that. I, I think one thing I, I, for me that particularly works is I have in my head a big library of, I've saved photos for decades of other mm-hmm. planting designs that I really love. So I feel like, and I, I used to teach planting design. For me, because like I'm not an unbelievable, like I wish I was a better drawer. For me, a big part of like when I'm thinking about what I might design, I will come to a site and I'll say, oh yeah, that reminds me a lot of this project. And sometimes the project will be in a similar climate or sometimes it's not. Like there's ways in which I can try to adapt something. So having a big library in my head, and that most includes wild spaces, like all those places I saw with Daryl in the wild or the kind of you know places you and I like to go to, but also just the design settings all over the world. I think that is a really useful for me shorthand. So I don't know if it's a daily practice, but just constantly collecting examples of just outstanding planting design, both in terms of images or just a little project that I'll file away. I, I, I find that really helps me start when I'm approaching a site because there, there's always parallel. And even if you want to try to copy a project exactly, which I, I don't encourage doing, but even if you were, <laughs> there's enough adaptation that would have to happen right between like your inspiration and that's by the time you've made it work on the, your own site will probably look pretty different and a little more fresh. So to steal liberally. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and is there anything lately that has really captured your attention mentally, like that you've been investing a lot of mental energy in or reading about or focusing on in the world of horticulture? I'm really interested right now in style, which is not something I've thought a lot about. I think after writing the book and a lot of our work is focused, you know, so much on kind of function and how to make things work. But there's certain plantings I see that have an edge to them that other ones don't. And I'm really interested in why certain plants have an edge, an artistic edge, and other ones don't. And so just personally for me and in our work at Fido, that's something I'm actually interested in pushing a little bit more. I think we do really nice plantings on our projects, but having, especially because we have so many of our sites are urban or small or hyper built up. When plantings, you know, it's great when they're functional and they're, they're luminous and they're happy and like that's all great. But to the next level, I think sometimes something that feels moody or interesting or of a place that makes it even more unique and even more resonance for, for humans. Um, that's really been 
something on my mind. So just looking through other projects and just analyzing what is it about this that has an edge to it? What is it about it that makes it feel even more vibrant and relevant? Had they used maybe more generic plant combinations? So what is it about like this particular species that's edgier, for example, than you know, a different cultivar of the plant, you know, and, and why does it feel that way? I know what you're talking about as far as whenever you say there's an edge, but are you finding any patterns or similarities with those different designs about giving that planting that edge so it feels a little bit different? I think there's something about the way certain combinations of the feeling of something much bigger. I think mm-hmm. sometimes there's certain combinations, and I think Pete Adolf's work, part of why it's a powerful is a few combinations make you feel the high line. We were on the high line not too long ago or a few, a few weeks ago. And there's certain moments when you see this that just make you feel like a prairie. These are really narrow beds, not super big areas. Like when it's, it's just that, that the resonance between two or three plants that all of a sudden, I don't know how to describe it, it taps into a more universal landscape feeling. And I think sometimes certain cultivars, certain and sometimes it takes a more stylized version of the plant in a small space to make you see it. Like you don't have the, the advantage of scale. So sometimes it's like a, a tighter form or a, I don't know. I, I think I, there's, there's something about that. I think there's something about the way that something small feels big. The, the evocative associations, the, the, the mental associations between something else. That gives something an edge to me. Honestly, I think color is a big part of it. People who do color really well, I'm always very admiring of because the, the right color combinations can really amplify the feeling of planting in a way that, especially where my favorite aspects of color are just like when you see a combination that makes you see a color in a plant that you would have normally seen. This one yes. plant next to it makes you see the that, that other part of the color that was in the stem that you didn't really bring your eye to unless until that other plant was there. You started yes. feeling this harmony between the two. You know, so people who are really good at that, sometimes it's, it's, you can do the same thing with plant morphology, not just color, the way that you see parallels between, you see the companion, you see the relationship because of the combinations. And there's something like that makes it more electric to me somehow. So it's, it's all of that. There's a lot of stuff. It's really hard to describe though. I find this is part of why I think I'm fascinated by it. It's really hard to put language around it because it's, it's such a um, gut level feeling. And there's probably lots of different levels in which it's impacting us. But but yeah, people who do it really well, Barry, and it just it just blows my mind. And it's just something I'm really like to ponder a lot lately. No, same here. In your book, y'all say that a design is a thousand small decisions and elegantly executing them. And I agree with you. I want to know how to do that better. So that's why I was asking that following up question about what patterns have you seen? So thank you for sharing that. Sure. So wrapping up here, I want to ask a couple quick fire questions. One, is there a gardening myth that you would like to bust on the podcast? Something that a lot of people think is the case in your work that you've seen otherwise? Sure. I think the quickest one I would say would be that soil fertility is the enemy. That's the statement, but the myth is that like too much that fertility, projectivity in soil is always good. I think the... In my experience, the areas that have the most problems in my gardens are the most like rich soils. Embracing leaner soils is, is the antidote to too much fertility. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
Do you have a favorite gardening book or horticulture book that you find yourself returning to time after time to reread or relook at? I love James Hitchman's Sewing Beauty. Mm -hmm. That's one that I not we're not sewing a lot of plant communities 100% from seed like he does, but I just find there's so many embedded principles, and he's writing about plant community design from such an international point of view. You know, he's gone to so many mm -hmm. different areas that it's one that I can open it up and read a few pages and have a kind of a aha moment again and again. So I really like the kind of density and the wonky academicness of that one. Yeah, so that's been one that I, I keep going to. Yeah, that's a great book. And another question I wanted to ask you is, it's been seven years since Planting in a Post-Wild World came out. Now that that book has been out here and you've had a little bit of time to think about it, looking back, is there any one big thing that you would change about what you would have put in the book? Have you learned something new that you're like, ah, oh, I really wish that I had had a chance to explore that further in the book? I wish we had put more images. I think a lot of the imagery in the book was stuff we had from the East Coast. And I wish just visually we had represented more different plant environments, maybe more Western ones, maybe more Mediterranean ones, just because mm -hmm. I I think I, I think our book got associated with the High Line and like this kind of East Coast herbaceous kind of Chicago, like all of that kind of look. And I feel like I still feel like the we. I think everything in there's great. There's always areas we want to expand on, and I hope we'll write something at some point on all the ways in which we are taking those principles and applying them in projects. I feel like we're learning so much more mm. through our work right now that kind of the application of these ideas in real sites. The other piece I wish we had more of, and we, maybe we'll do a whole book on this at some point, like land management. Um, it's, it's less because our book was very focused on designing, like the, that that part of it, like creating novel plant communities. Mm -hmm. But so much of our work now, especially on larger residential projects, is with large tracts of forest or meadows or edges, and the role that land management can have, which honestly has a much bigger ecological impact over you know much bigger acres than what you can do in small design combinations. And Claudia, again, give her credit. She lives and breathes on a 200-acre farm and is constantly battling white-tailed deer, invasive plant species, and but learning so much about what what, what are the minimal actions to do. She was mm -hmm. talking just yesterday with us about this approach to conservation, which is not about restoring a site to its primitive condition, but keeping a site's ability to adapt. Like that is the goal of a site. On on her farm, for example, all these red maples keep popping up. And she's thinking about all these red maples coming in. She's thinking about what disease in the future is going to wipe out. You know, if, if my the forests here are 90%, 80% red maples, you know, that's not preserving that land's ability to adapt. So a lot of what she's doing is putting guards around all the oak seedlings and reducing the red maple seedlings just to diversify the canopy and planting and to really target only the basic species that are most likely to create a monoculture and exclude everything else out and then letting some of the other ones go because she doesn't have the resource to do it all. So that kind of framework is to me, I think, one of the next frontiers that we would like to explore because we think there's huge application 
for that kind of thinking. Yes. And, and it's an ancient kind of thinking. Like it's what the people in Europe and the Middle Ages used to manage forest for their own consumption for firewood and food and all this kind of stuff. But a lot of this ancient management techniques were actually really good for ecological diversity. So we've lost this knowledge of how to take care of the land that's not immediately around our house. And and if we can bring back some of the knowledge, we feel like that would be vital for a, a plan that really needs it. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Second to last question that I always ask here on the Plantastic Podcast propagating horticulturist and propagating the interest in gardening and love of plants. Do you have any thought on what we could do better to try to help to engage more people and instill in them the love of plants? A great question. I just have to say, I love, I think you do so much work with this, especially with your work with students. I think you're a great example for me of someone who puts out into the world a love of horticulture. So I, I think it's just sharing passion. Like I, the fact that you're doing a podcast and the blog and all this stuff, but just that you, I think passion is magnetic and plant people love that. So I think the people who are brave enough to put that out there into the world, whether it's on the web or through your teaching or other stuff that you do, I think that can be so inspiring for people. So that, that to me is, I think, just sharing enthusiasm. And then for sometimes I'm sharing like there were just harsh realities to the lack of pay, for example, that that is associated with so many of the kind of plant-based professions, but letting people know that that's part of it. But still, like just if you follow your love, you can make a beautiful life out of it, a beautiful career. I appreciate those compliments that you gave me. Thank you very much. Uh, last question, where can people find you online and learn more about what you're doing? Our website, phytostudio.com. We're hopefully going to renovate it soon, but it has some of the work that we're currently working on. And then we're also on Instagram, phytostudio. You can just look that up and, and find us there. And we're trying to post photos of the projects. And, and I think we're, we're almost at the point we've been in a, a few years enough to have, we're about to have a lot more photographed in the last, in the next few uh, months in the next year or so. So we'll be Good. posting a lot more of the work and, and trying to share, sharing what we learned and what's worked and what, what hasn't. Always a lot to learn from failures as well. Yes. Thomas, thank you again for joining me on the Plantastic Podcast. I so appreciate uh, you talking about planting in the world, thinking about how we can do naturalistic planting, but also love how you know you can just give this language uh, to how we should do these plantings and you have such a good way of describing it. So thank you again for your and Claudia's book doing such great work on that. And thank you again for continuing to push the envelope on how we can plant better. Thanks, Jared. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Thanks so much for listening today. Do you have questions or comments? You can visit theplantasticpodcast.com for show notes and to reach out and say hi. Remember, plants can't talk, but we can. The plant world needs people to share how wonderful these green organisms are. So tell someone a fun fact about plants. Make it simple, make it remarkable, and most of all, make it plantastic. Until next time, keep growing.